Would you pray with me? Lord, we are gathered around the light of your word. We are gathered around the truth. And our desire is to be so tethered to that truth that nothing would shake us. How firm a foundation is laid for our faith in your word, O Lord. What more can you say than that which you have already said? Lord, we do come to you for refuge tonight. And in the midst of celebrating our fathers, we do come to honor and glorify our heavenly father. For without you, Lord, we would have no life and no existence. For you are the creator of all things. And we thank you and worship you this evening, Lord, through your word. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text tonight is Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Would you turn there with me? Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. I have to guess there are a couple of you here who are familiar with those lines, which come from a very famous soliloquy in which Juliet laments that what stands as a barrier between herself and Romeo, whom she loves, is nothing more than a name. Tis but thy name, she says, that is my enemy. Now, I'll admit before you this evening, I'm no Shakespearean scholar, but I believe the assertion of these words and the substance of Juliet's lament here is that names themselves, particularly in this case one's family name, are simply conventional badges of identification, a lot like a name tag. Name tags that don't necessarily correspond to the character of the person who wears them. Per these words, Juliet here is saying, in one sense, that names are not equal to or representative of one's true character and identity. So that is to say that Romeo is who he is apart from the title and name of Montague. And if he had any other last name, if he could somehow swap out that name tag, then there would be nothing to keep him and Juliet apart. But part of the tragic irony, at least in my view, of this statement is the reality that we as people are not in fact disassociated, wholly disassociated from our names, but that names and character, names and personhood, names and identity are uniquely intertwined. And we are in good company to believe this. The biblical concept of names and naming demonstrates this very point. Dr. Gary Practico, who co-authored the Hebrew textbook that I'm presently laboring through day and night, Uh, says this about the biblical concept of names. He says, The concept of a personal name includes personhood, character, reputation, and authority. A name can signify and encompass the whole person. It can express theological meaning or signify one's hopes or expectations for that person. So, according to Scripture, names are very important because names are a unique identification of character, a character which is then proved by action. 
In our text this evening, we find Moses cowering before a burning bush which is not consumed by the flame. He stands in the presence of Almighty God and he ponders a similar question. He says, what's in a name? Would you look at the text with me, please? Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. The question posed by Moses here in verses 13 through 15 is, the, is, is really the second of Moses' objections to God's call given to him to go to the Israelites who are presently in bondage in Egypt and to lead them out in a glorious act of redemption. Moses asks, if you'll uh, take your eyes and look briefly at verse 11 there, Moses asks first this question, who am I? In verse 11, and here in verse 13, Moses asks, God, who are you? Both of these questions are questions of identification. And both of these questions indicate that Moses does not fully yet comprehend or understand who he's speaking with. Contrary to some interpretations, when Moses declares, who am I that I should take on this task Some people believe he's expressing there a sense of humility or unworthiness. But others, myself included, believe that he's saying this not because he truly understands the holiness or has grasped the holiness of the God with whom he's having a conversation with and considers himself unworthy in that respect. But what he's actually doing is he's questioning this plan of God and he's questioning it precisely because of the question that follows, which is in our text tonight, which is this, right? God, what is your name? That is, God, who are you? So Moses is demonstrating here a hesitancy to trust in what God has said, particularly because he does not yet know the character of God. And isn't that fascinating that Moses himself, having been guided, sovereignly guided throughout uh, all of his life to this point, uh, comes to this moment of God's incredible self-revelation where Moses here is wondering, God, what are you like? What is your character? And perhaps more deeply in this question, when he asks, what is your name? What he's asking is this, why should I trust you? Why should I take you at your word? Moses anticipates that the people will wonder the same thing, right? He says here that when he shows up to a people who have been in utter bondage and slavery for years, when he comes to a people who have suffered greatly under an oppressive king, under an oppressive ruler, who are no doubt bone weary and heavy laden, Moses understands that when he comes proclaiming a message of redemption, the people are going to wonder who stands behind this plan. 
They're going to want to know who is the king, what is the character of the king who has sent this messenger. They will want to know, like Moses, can we trust in him? Can we take him at his word? This is what Moses is asking when he asks of God, God, what is your name? It demonstrates that both Moses and the people of God here, this demonstrates the the biblical concept of a name. They understand that it carries weight. It carries the weight of character. This is a huge theological question that they're asking. They're asking about the nature of God. They're not simply asking by saying, what is God's name? They're not simply asking, how does God identify himself? Right? Not, not, what, what does it say on his name tag? That's not what they're asking. They are, they are asking, what is the character of God? What does his name tell us about the character of God? And again, as I've said, can we trust in that name? Can we trust in him? Now, what's particularly interesting to me here is that God is preparing Moses to be what? He's preparing him to be a mediator. And what is he doing here before he's even realized that he is being called by God to do that very task? He's standing in on behalf of the people, speaking with God, and asking an important question. God, who are you? And God graciously and gloriously responds. And I want us to just take a moment this evening to pause and just consider how incredible that is. That the God of the universe, that God disclosing himself to his creation in a personal way, in a conversation, in words we can understand, in a language that Moses can understand, right? We cannot take for granted the incredible reality that the God who stretched out the expanse of the heavens, who placed every star, who, who spread out and fashioned and molded the galaxies, who filled the seas, right? Who dug the Marianas Trench, who established the foundation of the mountains, right? Who spoke every atom and molecule into existence. That God is interested in having a conversation with his creatures, that ought to give us some pause. And we ought to step back and say with the psalmist, O Lord, who is man that you are mindful of him? The Lord of heaven and earth is willing to condescend. That is, he's willing to come down to meet with his creation, to speak in terms that we can understand. And even, even not enough just to speak, but to actually answer the questions of his creatures. It's incredible. And it gets better, of course. What does he say in response? What does God say in response to this question? God says to Moses, what is your name? And God Responds and he says, Echye, Asher, Echye, I am who I am. Some translations will also render this, I will be who I will be, or I am that I am. The verbs translated I am here are derived from the Hebrew word chaya, which means to be or to become. It's, it's a, 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 a verb of existence. And it's from this construction that we get grammatically what is called the tetragrammaton. Now, I know that's a big word, but it literally means four letters, four Hebrew letters, yod, hey, vav, and hey. And from those four letters comes the word or name that we pronounce today as Yahweh. Now, 
contained in this name, contained in the name Yahweh, is the verb to be in all its forms, past, present, and future. So that when the name of Yahweh is pronounced or declared as a personal name, the meaning is this, one who was, one who is, and one who will be. One who was, one who is, and one who will be. So this self-revelation of God unto Moses here is in one sense a resounding proclamation of God's self-existence. God is saying, I have always been, I presently am, and I always will be. I am the source of all existence. All that is, all that has been, all that will be is bound together in who I am. God is declaring himself here to Moses to be the creator, sustainer, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the uncaused cause of all things, the foundation and basis of all existence. Now, the next time when you feel as though the world could turn in on itself, the next time you turn on the news and see the chaos of this world, I want you to remember That the God of all glory and existence has revealed himself to us. That we together as his people can take confidence in the fact that he has always been, always is, and always will be. I think if we could really grasp that, if we could really capture that and hold on to it, we would never fear again. We could truly say with the psalmist in Psalm 46, like we sang this morning, though the earth gives way, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the nations rage and kingdoms totter, and they are raging presently. What does the psalmist say? We will not fear. The Lord of hosts is with us. No doubt Moses was fearful Fearful of the mission being given to him. Fearful of his own inadequacies. Fearful of the fact that Pharaoh had said, should he return, he would be put to death. Moses was fearful that he would not be able to fulfill the task given to him. So what does God say in the declaration of himself? He says, I am. Trust in me. God is the sufficient cause of all existence. What confidence that ought to give us in times of difficulty and trial. Times when we're considering the will of God. Times when we are in rough and difficult waters. Our lives, and indeed the lives of all people, don't stand, don't stand or fall on the precipice of fate or chance. All that was... All that is and all that will be is bound up together in the character of God. God is also declaring in this self-revelation, when he says to Moses, I am, he's also declaring that he is unchanging. This is what we call in theological terms the immutability of God. When you hear those words, that means the, the fact that God does not change. God has always been who he is and will always be who he is. Right, James tells us that there's no variation or shadow in him due to change. Because he does not change then, what he declares or decrees must come to pass just as he's declared and decreed it. He cannot lie. Right, Hebrews tells us that. And because he cannot lie, his promises are sure and steadfast. He is reliable. He is trustworthy. And in the words 
of that great reformer, Martin Luther, he is a bulwark never failing, a strong refuge in the words of the psalmist. God here is saying, I am self-existent, I am unchanging, and he's also declaring that he is eternal. Now, how's that for an answer? Moses asks God, what is your name? Who are you? What is your character? And God answers, I am, declaring his self-existence, declaring himself to be the eternal and the immutable God, the unchanging God. Now, remember, as I mentioned a few moments ago, that the fact that God, as glorious and wondrous and majestic as he is and will always be, the fact that he's communicating with Moses in conversation here in a way that Moses can understand, that's incredible. And it demonstrates an important point and one that I've made before. It demonstrates that while God is transcendent, which I think these words, right, self-existence, eternal, immutable, that tells us that God is transcendent, that he's holy, that he's glorious, and that he's majestic. But while that is true, the very fact that he's conversing with Moses and the content of what he is telling Moses, this demonstrates also that God is also imminent. I've used that word a lot. It means near, that God's presence is near. Right, let's not forget what's the whole purpose of this conversation. I know we've jumped into the text here, but the purpose of this conversation, the reason God has called Moses to himself is to declare to Moses his plan for what? His plan for redemption. The redemption and salvation of his people. So God is not simply transcendent in the sense that he's glorious and standing as creator and sustainer of the universe, but he's also zoomed in in an intimate way and intimately aware of all that is going on to the point where he says himself, I have heard the affliction and the cries of my people. He heard their cries. God is near. He is imminent. And just as he's answered Moses here, so he will also answer his people. And he will answer with with both of those truths. He will answer in a way that is immeasurably powerful and transcendent, right? Mind-bending, the fact that the Nile could turn to blood. And yet through those Incredible acts, those plagues that he sends upon Egypt, also demonstrating his abundant love for his people to protect them and to rescue them out from under the hand of Egyptian slavery. Our God is transcendent, holy, mighty, and yet near, personal, compassionate, and loving. God wants Moses to know, as he does want us to know this evening, this is who I am, this is my character. The infinite God who is infinitely concerned with his creatures. And this fact, brothers and sisters, is no more clearly demonstrated than in the person, work, and ministry of God incarnate. Would you turn with me to John chapter 8? John chapter 8, beginning in verse 51. Again, John chapter 8, starting in verse 51. Jesus here speaking to the Jewish people. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. 
For Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Question of identification. Who are you? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Listen to these words. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The principal question that the people ask here of Jesus is, who are you? And Jesus gives an emphatic answer. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Now that ought to sound familiar. Jesus here is declaring that which God is also declaring to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Jesus is also saying, I am who I am, the self-existent, eternal, immutable, all-holy, all-powerful, all-loving God. So if anyone ever says that Jesus never claimed divinity, that Jesus never claimed deity, you take those two scriptures and you place them before those people. Notice the response of the people to that as well. You see, they were idolizing Abraham, weren't they? Not knowing that Abraham, as Jesus says, was looking forward in faith to the time when the great I am would make his presence known through Christ, the fulfillment of the covenant given to Abraham. And this is where the unfolding story just gets better and better. Right? We know that Christ comes, like Moses, as a king's messenger. Right? Moses was given the task of proclaiming, along with God's name, he also came to proclaim God's plan of redemption for the people of Israel. So too is Christ, like Moses, by the Father, entrusted with the message of redemption. So both Moses and Christ come as kingdom messengers. But we understand by the witness of Scripture that the ministry of Christ is far better than the ministry of Moses, right? We've been studying this in Hebrews on Wednesday night. Christ's ministry is better than Moses's. Why? Because, as the author of Hebrews will tell us, Moses was a servant, Christ is a son. Moses came to point to God and to the character of God. Christ comes as God Himself, acting as God Himself, representing in the flesh the very nature of God, right? In Christ, the fullness of the deity of God dwells. Moses was a man. Christ is both man and God. Moses was sinful. Christ was perfect. Moses led an earthly exodus of people out of physical bondage and slavery, which was no doubt difficult and 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 wearing down on their souls but Christ even more so leads a spiritual victory parade from soul bondage to sin and corruption into freedom and gladness and joy and righteousness in him what i want you to see this evening is that god does not simply come to us to declare his name in time and history but he also proves that name by his actions 
He demonstrates his character. He demonstrates that he is the great I am by way of his actions. And he is the God who acts for the sake of his beloved people. Jesus here is not simply declaring to the people that he is God, but he also will prove his character as God by his actions. Briefly, I want to note these statements that Jesus makes. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus makes a number of these I am statements, and they all point back to different Old Testament uh, revelations. In John chapter 6, verses 35 through 48, Jesus declares, I am the bread of life, right? We saw the bread of the presence in Leviticus 24. Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. In John chapter 8, verse 12, and also chapter 9, verse 5, Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. We saw the light that was to be constantly burning in the tabernacle. Jesus comes to declare, I am the light of the world, symbolic of the presence of God. In John 10, Jesus declares that I am the gate that you enter in through me. In John chapter 10, verses 11 through 14, Jesus declares, I am the good shepherd. In John 11, verse 25, Jesus declares, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 14, 6, Jesus declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in John 15, verses 1 through 5, Jesus declares, I am the true vine. Now, each of these statements are a revelation, a fuller revelation of the character of God realized in and through Christ. And notice that each of these statements are made to the people. Each of these statements are an invitation to trust in the name of God that through faith in Christ they may receive life in Him. And what is this? I want to ask you what is the singular act in history which brings all of those I am statements together? What is the pinnacle point of God's self revelation in Jesus Christ? Where was Christ as the God man vindicated and proved in who he was? What particular action proves the character of God as a God who is both infinitely holy, right? Perfect justice must be satisfied in him, and yet infinitely near, perfectly compassionate and loving? Where did such an event take place? The only action which can embody those principles to their fullest extent is the act of redemption by personal sacrifice in death for the satisfaction of perfect justice. John said to me the other day, he said he hopes the last words out of his mouth are substitutionary atonement. (laughs) Amen. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement can it be. Together let us say, Hallelujah, what a Savior. It is for this purpose that Christ was sent in the fullness of time to reveal the mystery hidden for ages, to reveal the character of the great I Am. Christ is the true and better Moses because he's not simply the king's messenger. He is the king himself. Christ does not simply come to proclaim a message of redemption. He comes to secure that redemption by the sacrifice of his own life. And by that sacrifice, redeem us into a relationship with God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, the great I am, which we today, brothers and sisters, call Abba, Father. And so as I begin this evening, I ask you now, what's in a name? Seems like quite a bit. 
What is the name of God to us? It is existence. It is life. It's holiness and power and might, glory, steadfast love, covenant faithfulness, enduring patience, long-suffering, abundant mercy, lavish forgiveness, rich grace, full redemption, life and life abundant. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification, after making atonement for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the name of God revealed in Jesus Christ, our all in all. Brothers and sisters, my word of exhortation to you tonight is to trust in that name. For there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Trust in that name. Proclaim that name. The name of God revealed in Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, how great and wondrous is your word, stitched so perfectly together. We thank you, Lord, for prophecies and promises given and prophecies and promises fulfilled. We thank you for speaking with us, for condescending, Lord, to converse with us. And we recognize, Lord, that you are still speaking today. And we recognize the privilege of hearing your voice. We know that those who hear your voice are your people. Father, we pray that you would help us to trust evermore in your great name. We ask this for the glory of that name in and through faith in Jesus Christ, your only son. And our only plea. Amen.